on the book of John, series entitled Unveiled. And there's a story in the scriptures that you might be familiar with. See if you can take your mind's eye back and your imagination. Picture the ancient city of Jerusalem, and just outside the eastern side of the season, the city, see if you can picture a group of men, small group of men, exiting the city, traveling east up towards the Mount of Olives. There's a leader there, someone obviously who's leading the rest of them, but things don't look quite right. The guy looks a little haggard, looks a little weary. He looks like he's had a rough go of it. And as you zone in and kind of hear a little bit of the conversation of the group, you can hear that the men are frustrated. It turns out they think that their leader should be the rightful king of Jerusalem and in all of Israel, but he hasn't been recognized as such yet. In fact, they're actually fleeing the city. And as they get to a quiet spot there near the Mount of Olives, you kind of hear them talking, and it's, it's very discouraging talk. It's, it's sad. There's some tears flowing. And you hear the leader even say to some of his closest friends that, uh, you can't go with me anymore. Some of this burden I have to bear on my own. And even as he's speaking, the leader knows that one of his closest pals, closest friends in the whole world, is going to be a conspirator against him. He's betraying him, even in this moment. And it's kind of, you back out, as you fade out of that scene in your mind, you can see the leader there with his head covered, kneeling on the ground, and he's weeping, tragically. The story sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's actually from the life of David, some 1,000 years before the time of Christ. As David was fleeing the city of Israel and the city of Jerusalem and Israel from his own son Absalom, who was usurping his throne. But it sounds very close in detail to that dark Thursday night we see of the Passion Week, what we call Monday Thursday, a shadowy evening where Jesus is arrested. You might think, why do these two texts sound so similar? One reason is that David is a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing Christ. But another reason is a lot of these Bible stories have the same gritty feel. They take place in real life. They're not meant to be fairy tales. Instead, they're meant to touch us and meet us where we are in our own real-life struggles. Could be you're here today and you're struggling with the grips of depression. Maybe getting up in the morning uh, is not as appealing to you as laying in bed. The bed becomes more appetizing than breakfast or even lunch, and so you just sleep in. Or maybe you can relate to blogger Rachel Watson. She recently wrote this on the website. She said, um, her darkest night came recently at the age of 30 when she was curled up in the fetal position of her own bathroom, calling out to God to save her husband and her marriage, which inevitably ended in divorce. All of us have these painful stories that grip us, real-life, edgy stories, and the Bible doesn't shy away from those things. It actually uh, it forms our own story that adds truth to the stories that we go through every day. And this text today in John 18 is one of those stories. Jesus himself is now going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Confidence is going to betray him. His body is going to be decimated. The very holy one is going to be accused of blasphemy. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be shamed. 
But if you look closely at John's account, what he'll do is he'll crack a window and open it wide that the other gospel stories don't have. For instance, if you read through John's account, you won't see a moment where Jesus is is sweating in the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead, you see a prolonged account of his trial. And there's a reason for that. As you look through this, you'll actually see a, a shocker in the text because the one arrested actually begins to steer his own arrest. That doesn't happen in real life much. If you're the prisoner, you are controlled. But with Jesus, he begins to steer the whole thing. The one accused is actually upstaging the prosecution. And for a covert plot that Judas and the Jewish leaders cooked up, a scene where they wanted to control everything about Jesus' last night, it ended up being an ill-made night. They didn't do it very well. They lost control. And that textual slant is actually going to be our hope this morning because God realizes that our own darkest nights often seem out of control. But we are to see in this text that even in your darkest nights, Christ is ruling. Christ ruled his darkest hour, and he can also rule over your own darkest night. And we can see this by looking at three common types, shades, if you would, of darkness that we see here in the text. Let's look at one right from the get-go here. The first shade of darkness that we see here is surprises, but we see that Christ supervises his surprises. Christ supervises surprises. A lot of us are really anxious when we get surprised, right? That can throw us off guard. When we do premarital counseling here at TCC, we always say to the man, understand if your wife likes surprises or not, because not everybody does. Some people are actually made nervous. As I was driving to church today, I was listening to the radio, and there was this political analyst talking about the recent elections here in North Carolina last week, and he said, I've been doing this 20 years, but I'm a little nervous because I've been caught off guard. Six months ago, I would have never thought that Donald Trump would have won the Republican uh, race that he did here in North Carolina. And so you have this expert of all political science, and he's now caught off guard, and he's reeling because of the success that Trump had. We don't like surprises sometimes. They can shock us. But we see here in our text today a big surprise for all of Jesus' followers. And just so you can get your your place in the Bible, your textual bearings. Remember what's happening in the book of John. And chapters 13 and 14 that we talked about, they detail Jesus' last supper. So his last meeting indoors with all of his followers happened way back in 13 and 14. And then there's three chapters of Jesus' teaching, his prayers, that get us up to where we are today in John 18. Um, So Jesus had told his followers at the end of 14, get up, let's go from here. And it's not until 18 until we see him actually moving here. So read verse 1 of 18 with me if you've got your Bible. I hope you'll read along. What we read here is that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So I'm going to use our Bible GPS here and make sure we know what's going on. If you see the map that I hope to pull up behind me, you'll notice that... uh, The upper room was where Jesus had his last meal. He washed the feet. We think it could have been Mark's family. We know from Acts that his family had a big enough house where people used to meet there. So it could have been his house. They left there, and they went east by the spring and through the valley and up to the Garden 
of Gethsemane, which was a, a place where Jesus would often take his followers and pray. And uh, during the Passover season, um, you needed to sleep inside the realms of the city, and the garden was counted as that. So you could, you could sleep over there if you wanted to. So it's a logical place Jesus took them. And now in verse 2, after going to the garden, we see the surprise. Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew this place, where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and some Pharisees, he went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And this is going to be uh, akin to if you were to find your husband out one night at your favorite restaurant in the arms of another woman dancing to your song, calling her by your pet name. This is that type of betrayal, that type of a shocker moment for all of Jesus' followers to show up with a band, an army of soldiers. The language there that's used is indicative of a whole company of Roman soldiers, which uh, existed in the numbers of a thousand. So when they got together, there was a thousand. They usually camped out with about four to six hundred. So there's probably 500 or more people gathered here coming up to arrest Jesus. Romans did it well. When they're going to arrest somebody, they did it full force. They bring a load up here to surprise Jesus and to catch him off guard. But I want you to notice in the upcoming section, we're not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to pick up some phrases here that show that Jesus isn't someone who's floundering from the shock and the stun of this staggering surprise. Look at these phrases, like in verse 4, for instance. Look what Jesus is said about Jesus. Remember, he just got the big shocker of his life here. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, right? The scriptures say that Jesus knew all of this would happen. Also look in verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, look, if you're looking for me, why don't you let my disciples go? Let these other men go. And he said this to fulfill the word that he'd already spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So get it, Jesus had predicted this. How could he predict that this was going to happen? 500 soldiers would show up in his secret place of prayer. He can do this because he's supervising it. He can predict it because he's supervising this surprise. And then when the soldiers surround Jesus, what does he do? He astonishes everybody by revealing just an ounce of his glory while uttering the deity-dripping words, I am he. He shows them a flash of who he is, and they hit the ground. All these Roman soldiers hit the deck, tinkering and tumbling to the ground because he showed that he is in control. And these were bad boys, these soldiers. My kids and I have sometimes will watch this show called The Deadliest Warrior. I don't know if you've seen it, but they do computer simulations of warriors in history, so they might take a ninja or an Apache warrior, and they'll run all the stats and see who the toughest is. And one day I was watching it, and the Roman soldier was actually on there. He made the top toughest warriors in history. These guys didn't just bow to anyone, but they saw in Jesus someone who had more control than they did. He was supervising this surprise. And finally, what does Peter do in this moment? He gets a little hilt happy, right? He takes a swing. He takes a swipe at one of the people who are there to arrest him, a servant, actually, and makes contact. Gets him right in the right ear. We don't know what he's aiming for, but he got the right ear. And, and there's blood, and Jesus moves to it, and he heals it. And what does he say? Verse 11, 
I said, put that sword away. Put it into its sheath. Not because he's a pacifist, but because he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, am I not to suffer? I know my Father gave me this suffer. He ordered it for me, and now I want to drink of this suffering. Jesus is seen as in complete control at this moment. And John wants us to see a controlling God, even in the midst of this storm, and trust in him. There's a story from the Revolutionary War I read this week. Uh, and from the early 1770s, there's a Bostonian lawyer who was named Josiah Quincy Jr. And he was able, smart guy, to see the horrors of the Revolutionary War, how that would decimate uh, Boston. And all their economy was going to crumble. And so right before it, he's scared. He's looking to the Revolutionary War, and he gets uh, to the town hall meeting among all his peers. And even though he's scared, he gives this famous speech. He says, look, I can see the clouds which now rise thick and fast upon our horizon, talking about the war. I can hear the thunders roll and the lightnings play. And to the God that rides on the whirlwind and directs the storm, I will commit. John Quincy was able to see God's hand in his darkest night. And that's the question for you today. In your darkest night, are you able to see Christ's supervising hand in your own whirlwind? I had my own whirlwind a couple weeks ago. I was at home early in the morning, and I received a text from my mother. She lives out of state. She's been helping to care for my father who lives in hospice care. He's not doing well. He's terminally ill in advanced stages of Alzheimer's. So you don't want to get that text early in the morning. But I got a text saying he was doing bad, and so... Instead of driving to TCC that day, I packed up my stuff and drove over the Foggy Mountains to Knoxville about six hours. And I arrived at his care facility, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, his condition was going uh, worse and worse. And so I was able to sit with him for a time. And there, there was a moment where he just took a bad turn, and he was doing all of the things you would expect someone who was about to pass away to do. He was spazzing. He was uh, shallow breathing, getting really pale in a bad way. So the nurses reacted, and there was chaos there in general. I remember just grabbing his knee and just praying with him and saying, Dad, it'll be all right, and saying, God, God, I need you to convince me that you are here. And not only that, but that you are supervising all of this. And I'll tell you, that is where my peace came in that moment. Not whether Dad would live or die, but whether God was controlling this thing and he could make it for good. Praise God, dad didn't die. He took an upturn in that moment. I don't know how far, how much longer he'll live, but I do know this, after coming through that situation, that I don't want to live in a world where Christ is not supervising even the darkest of my nights. But if you take that away from him, who's going to turn it for good? Who's going to turn it for joy? And that's going to be your hope this week when you think about how can I apply this text? How can I learn from this arrest of Jesus? One big thing is that uh, our unspeakably great God is supervising our surprises. That's one lesson. Here's the second lesson we can get from this text today. Second lesson says this. Not only does Christ supervise our surprises, but he also runs rebellions. Christ actually runs rebellions. This is a tricky one. And once again, let's look at the Bible and understand what's going on here in the twists and turns of the Bible text. 
in verses 12 through 27 in front of you, we're now going to see the trial of Jesus before the Jewish government. Now remember, the Jews were occupied by the Romans at that time. What that meant was they're going to have to have two civil trials. If you want to get anything done when you arrest somebody, especially if it's a capital offense, you're going to have to try them before the Jewish government and then the Roman government. So the Jews take their turn first, and that's what you see all the way from 12 through 27 there. Um, and you can keep the story alive in your imagination. Let me throw another map up there so you'll know exactly what's going on. So Jesus was arrested in the top right corner there at the garden. And you, if you can follow that red line, you'll see as he goes down to number two, we'll look at that in a moment. That's the palace of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. From there, that interview, he'll go all the way to the left to five and three, which is Pilate's palace. So he'll go over there to the Roman seat. Pilate will bounce him back to King Herod, which is number four. Herod just wants him to do a trick, and he doesn't get it, so he throws him back to Pilate there on number five. Pilate will actually be the one who sentences him to death and will send him up to the side of the crucifixion that we think is towards the northwest of the city. So that's what's going on as you're picturing all of this. Verses 12 and 13 in your text have Jesus being arrested and sent to this house of Annas, this mansion of of Annas. Now, Annas was the OG of the high priest. He was a guy who's been there forever. Everybody respected him, but he was no longer active, right? His son-in-law was the active Jewish leader. His name was Caiaphas, and on this night, Jesus would have to stand before both of them. But they went to Annas first. Perhaps he was the one who organized and orchestrated the whole arrest scenario. So he goes to see him. Uh, one thing that will stick out to you as you read this is that uh, John, the author of this text, is going to sprinkle in the account of Peter's betrayal in the middle of this trial. So if you think about how to tell a story, you might tell the story of what happened to Jesus in his trial, and then you might say that also Peter was betraying him. But what John does is he interposes these two texts. As you're reading through there, there's some interruption, and it goes from Peter's denial to the trial, then back to Peter's denial, then back to the trial. You ask yourself, why, why would John do it that way? Well, it's because one of them informs the other. What happens at the trial is supposed to flavor your view of what's going on in Peter's uh, betrayal and denial scene. So let's look uh, at them separately here together. So what happened to Peter? Well, as Jesus was arrested and brought into the city, Peter was following at a distance. Apparently, all the disciples took off but two. Peter, and John. And they arrived to Annas' house, what's called the Hasmonean Palace, where he hung out with Caiaphas. The rulers of the Jewish government were at this palace. Let's see if we can get a look at it here. Uh, what I want you to notice, on the left is the outside view. Jesus would have been walked up these steps, and there's a door that goes actually into the palace. You can see right at the top of the stairs. That's where Peter had to stop, because that's where Everybody who wasn't an official had to wait outside, so the official proceedings would go on the left side. This is the inside looking out. Sorry, on the right side, inside looking out. So you can see on the right, there's a courtyard there. That's where Jesus would actually be tried by the Jewish authority, but Peter uh, would have to stay outside because he wasn't a part of the government. Turns out, though, that John knew somebody. John had some connection, so he was actually able to come into the right side of the courtyard as we read here in verse 15. So let's read about it here. So Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John. And since that disciple, John writing about himself, he calls himself that disciple. Uh, that disciple was known to the high priest. Somehow, John was a fisherman, upper class 
fishermen, middle, middle upper class fishermen. Perhaps he provided the fish to the high priest. We don't know, but somehow he knew that family and they let him in. It was his ticket in. So he entered with Jesus into the courtyard, but Peter, verse 16, stood outside the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, he went out and spoke to the bouncer, the servant girl, so to speak, that was guarding the gate, and he tells her, she must have been a burly sort, he tells her, you, you got to let Peter in here. And uh, as, as she's letting him in, she recognizes him. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, hey, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter says what? No, I am not. So that's his first denial. Now skip over the trial scene down to verse 25, and you'll see his second and third denial here. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and he was warming himself. God has given us this day today, this weather, to remind you of the night of Jesus' trial because it was cold there. They made a fire, and he was warming himself. And as he was there, someone said to him, Hey, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it again. And he said, I am not. Almost the direct opposite of Jesus' earlier revelation. What did Jesus say when they asked him who you are? He said, I am he. When they asked Peter, he said, I am not. Denial. The third one comes here in verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose Peter ear had cut off. I mean, what bad timing is that, right? You're there, you're Peter. Of all the people to meet around the fire, it's the nephew of Malchus, the guy who one ear Jesus healed. And he's like, oh, I was there. Didn't I see you, Peter, with Jesus in the garden? And the other gospel authors will tell us um, that uh, Peter was from Galilee. He he had an accent. Jesus was also from Galilee, so much like being from Tennessee like me. Another person from Tennessee starts talking. We sound alike, and you can say, hey, you guys know each other. That's what's happening to Peter here. His, his words are given away, and somebody says, hey, you were with him in the garden. And he says, no, I wasn't right then. The rooster crows. So Christ stands three times now, betrayed by one of his fiercest followers, what are we to make of this? Why have we told this story? Well, like I said, we have to read the account of his trial to fully understand Peter's betrayal. So let's do that, and we'll see what God has for us. Verses 19 through 24, it's a big chunk of text. We'll just pick through it a little bit here, and I'll summarize it for you. What happens is Annas, the high priest, is questioning Jesus. And within that questioning, something happens that's surprising. As he's asking the question, I don't know if you've ever watched courtroom TV on, on TV, but inevitably there'll be this judge, and he usually has a bit of an authority attitude, right? He'll just say, tell me what happened. No, I don't want to hear that. Tell me what happened. And, you know, the person who's on trial is at the mercy of the judge. But in this scene, it's the opposite. The person doing the questioning actually ends up looking like a fool with no authority. For instance... What time is it when this is going on? This is probably 2 or 3 a.m. when this court is in session, and that's not the normal time to do court in the Jewish life. They didn't normally do this, and yet there's this secret court that's going on. He starts asking Jesus questions. Jesus says, hey, why didn't you ask me in the daylight, in the public, where I was teaching? Point for Jesus. He was saying, I have to do my stuff in broad daylight because I'm not ashamed. You have to do your stuff under the cover of darkness. My authority is superior. Next, 
All of a sudden, one of the guards backhands Jesus. He smacks him across the face. Why did he do that? Because he thought Jesus was not showing the proper respect to Annas. In the Jewish law, it was a crime to disrespect the high priest. So this guy smacks Jesus. What does Jesus do in his response? He says, hey, look, if you think I've broken the law, call some witnesses, and they'll testify that I've broken the law, and then it's crickets. He can't find anybody to testify that Jesus has actually broken the law. So that's two points for Jesus. As you read this trial over and over, he begins to seem as the one in control, just like in his own arrest. And it's precisely this command of the situation, this superior authority that's supposed to inform the idea and the concept of Peter betraying Jesus. So think through what happened when Peter betrayed Jesus. It wasn't just spur of the moment. Jesus had actually predicted it in chapter 13, right? Jesus was talking about how hard it was going to be to follow him when he, when, uh, he would be arrested and when he'd be crucified. He was telling all of his closest followers, look, it's going to be hard. One of you is actually going to turn away from me. And Peter pipes up and he said, oh, it's not going to be me. I'll never do that. And what does Jesus say? It's actually, it will be you this night before the morning, before the rooster even crows it'll be you. But he doesn't leave him there. In that moment, he says, it'll be you, and you'll actually end up being a genuine follower of me, and you'll be a good leader back when this whole thing restarts after I have my resurrection. So in his bad news, Peter, you're going to betray me, he actually gives the good news. You're going to hold on and actually be a genuine believer. That's something to think about, that Christ is actually running. He's ruling over. He's working Peter's rebellion to good. Christ can run our rebellions. And that's the application for us today. We all have our own inner WrestleManias with sin. We all fight with sin weekly. I want you to know that when God saved you, when he called you by his Holy Spirit, when he adopted you into his family, he knew full well about your current and your future anger. He knew about your persisting bitterness. He knew your sexual immorality. He knew your coveting heart. He knew your laziness. He knew your insecurities, your jealousies, your pride, and your idols. And he still said, mine. Still reached out and he grabbed you. Why? Because he knew your story with all of its peaks and valleys was a part of his grander narrative of redemption. And so we can take hope even in the midst of our darkest rebellious nights that Christ is running these things. I read a story this week about another church that was set up similar to ours that had community groups. And what happened one time was there was a new believer that came into the church and they joined a community group and everything was great for two months. It was going so well that she decided to have a party and invite people over. So she called a host, and they set up at the host house, and they even invited the pastor. So they had 20 people of the community group all made it, and they had a celebration, a meal, and then she called everybody in the living room, and she said, why don't you guys sit down? So they sat down in a semicircle, and uh, she sat in the middle, and she got a real serious look on her face. And for the next 10 minutes, she began to confess the darkest, dirty laundry of her life. She hadn't been a Christian long enough to know we normally don't do that, but she went for it, and she just spilled it all out. And because after she became a believer, she had a great period, but then she had some period where she fell back into some of her old ways, and she just confessed, and she was broken before them and weeped, and there was a moment of silence where everybody was shocked. 
And then all of a sudden, an amazing thing happened. The people began to come towards her, hug her, cry for her, embrace her, and talk about the forgiveness that was there in Jesus. She wasn't pushed away. She was embraced. And she now looks back at that moment, and she could say, you know, Christ was even running my rebellion. He used my pain to bring me to this place of joy. And that's going to be God's lesson for you today. Even in your doubting, even in your rebellion, even in your weak moments, Christ is shining through, and he has a purpose that he's working for his good. I don't mean Jesus is to blame. Don't hear that. He's not to blame for Peter's denial. What I'm saying is that he can run this in the right direction. He's running the show, even if your rebellion seems so overwhelming. One more concept comes out here as you study the trial of Jesus. We've seen how Christ supervises our surprises, and he runs rebellions. Here's one more thing we see in the text. Christ can triumph through truth. Christ triumphs in your darkest night through truth. Christ triumphs through truth. Look with me down in verse 28, 1828. So now they lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, that's that mansion that I showed you, to the governor's headquarters. That's on the far left west side of the city. And it's early morning. The Jewish people, uh, the Jewish leaders here, they had a time clock that was ticking. They wanted to get this done early on Friday because if they waited to midday, what would happen is their people would hear about it. Once they woke up, they would hear, oh, Jesus has been arrested? And there might be some mob pushback, some, some uh, out-of-control situations they have to deal with. So they were, they were going early. It was early in the morning. And they arrived at Pilate's house. Pilate was the governor of all of the area, all of Judea. Um, and uh, if you were going to have someone executed... The Jews had to come to Pilate. And this is where their plan really begins to unravel. It really looks super out of control here because they can't even kill him themselves. They have to come to Pilate and say, would you kill him for us? We're not able to do it. When they arrive at his house, they can't even go inside the administrative building because it's the Passover and it would be unclean for the Jewish leaders to go inside a Gentile's building. So they have to wait outside. Thankfully for them, Pilate's used to this kind of thing. He's, he's no uh, spring chicken, so he, he goes out there. It's not his first rodeo. He knows something's going on, and he uh, gets Jesus, and he takes him back for a private conversation. We're going to skip over that, and what he does after the conversation, he brings Jesus back out in verse 38, and we'll see what happens. He brings him back out. He went back outside to the Jews, and he told the leaders there, I find no guilt in this man. In other words, Pilate thinks he's innocent. But, here's, how, here's where he shows himself as KG. I know you do have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So the Romans, in occupying people, they would try to get a, a little bit of a handle on some of their festivals, and they knew that the Passover was going on. There was a theme of liberation, so they were willing to let loose one criminal every year at the Passover to appease the Jewish people. So Pilate says, aha, well, I know you want me to let go of somebody why don't I let go of Jesus, this king of the Jews? I'll release him. Verse 40, the Jewish leaders cry out, no, not this man, but Barabbas over here. Barabbas, son of the father. This guy is pictured in the gospel as a real winner. He was a thief, he was an insurrectionist, and he was a murderer. And you can almost see him in your mind's eye over in the corner being like, nah, yes, let me, let me go, let me go. 
the worst candidate for being let go ever, right? And yet, that's who the Jewish leaders say, uh, yes, that's, we'll take that guy. And you know something's going on, and it's gotten so out of control that they have to let loose the craziest man in town. And that's what they're asking for. Chapter 19, Pilate takes Jesus, and he says, I know what I will do. I will have Jesus mocked. I'll have myself a flogging. Now, this is not the scourging, the real bad torture that comes later. This is more for humiliation. Jesus is flogged. He's lightly dealt with here, and he's mocked. What they do, you'll see, they uh, put a crown of thorns. This is no small thing. They put a crown of thorns on his head, and they dress him up. They put him in a purple robe, and they came out, and they mock him. They say, hell, it's the king of the Jews. Hey, king of the Jews, what are you doing now? They're just making fun of him, publicly humiliating him, and they strike him with their hands, not beating him with sticks at this time, but they're smacking him around with their hands, and a pilot goes out now after seeing this, and he says, look, I'm bringing him back out to you, verse 4. I'm bringing him back out to you now so that you'll know I find no guilt in this man. Over and over we're told he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Obviously, the Jews have lost control here. So Jesus comes out. He's wearing this crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate says to them, look, here's the man. Behold the man, verse 5. And in verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers see him, they still cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And from this point forward, Pilate begins to look really weak, really confused, really cowardly. He wants to exonerate Jesus, but he gets scared, basically. Pilate's religion was paganism, which meant he, he got real nervous when he heard stories about somebody being a god. And these people were saying something about Jesus being the son of God, so Pilate starts to get a little nervous. More than that, his job is on the line. What we don't read, but we know from history, is that Pilate's main connection to the main Roman, Roman government had just been called a traitor and executed. That meant that Pilate was now on the hot seat, right? His main connection was gone to Caesar, and he wasn't about to make a mistake. And so listen to what happens in the story. The Jewish leaders know this, and they play this against him. Look in verse 15. The Jewish leaders call out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate says to them, am I going to crucify the guy you're calling the king here? The chief priest answers, we have no king except Caesar. So they're throwing the Caesar connection back in his face. And at that moment, Pilate relents. He delivers them over to be crucified. What I really want to draw your attention to, though, is the part we skipped over, you Hop with me back up in chapter 1833. Look at this private conversation we see between Pilate and Jesus. So he's called him into his headquarters. He talks to Jesus in verse 33 of 18. This is what he said. Are you the king of the Jews? He's curious, right? Jesus answers in 34. You say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And then you can see Pilate just seems really snobby here. He seems really condescending as he's talking to Jesus. I picture in my mind the actor who played uh, Snape in Harry Potter, if you've ever seen that guy, just someone who's like, uh, who are you, Jesus? And he says to him, am I actually a Jew that you should ask me this question? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered even over to you. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, Jesus answers. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth will listen to my voice. And this is the text where we actually see Jesus as the most triumphant. Here he reveals himself and his purpose to Pilate and to us and to all the world. Look at verse 36 again. When Pilate asked Jesus if he's an earthly ruler, what does Jesus say? He first says that he is a king, but he says, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. It didn't originate in Italy or Palestine for that matter. It originates in heaven. It's otherworldly, and therefore it's not corrupted by all of the schemes of Satan. It's not corrupted by sin or evil or oppression or greed, all of the things that corrupt man's kingdom. Instead, my kingdom is one of peace and harmony, and the God, Yahweh, is at the center of it. My kingdom is not of this world. And then in verse 37, Christ reveals his purpose for coming, his purpose for being born in Bethlehem, his purpose for being baptized, his purpose for living in the desert, his purpose for living a perfect life, for calling 12 disciples and for dying and being beaten. Here's his purpose. He says in verse 37, I came to bear witness to the truth. What does the truth mean here? Well, earlier John has defined it for us in chapter 1, verses 14 and 17. He said, Jesus came as a man full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus was the culmination of all of the Old Testament hope. If you read most of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, the people were looking for an assurance of who God was. They were trying to find his character, and they never saw it. Even though they had the law and the prophet, they never saw who God truly was. And when they got glimpses of his true glory, they would look away. They would rebel. There would be mutiny. But when Jesus came, he gave us as much of God as we could handle. He gave us a true revelation of who God was. Only Jesus could pay the sacrifice to rid us of sin. All of the Old Testament said, Something's wrong here in our inner selves that needs to be corrected. We're rebels, and so there's a sacrificial system, and only Jesus could end that with his brutal sacrifice on the cross. Only Jesus could keep God's law fully, and he did so, perfectly submitting himself to God's will. Only Jesus can begin the recreation of all things was messed up and tarnished by Adam. He does that. He walks around. He performs miracles brings the Spirit who recreate. Only Jesus will salve the sting of death. We see that in Lazarus's case. Jesus coming, applying that salve. And only Jesus, as we look forward to Easter next week, will triumphantly deliver his people from the curse of death. In the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we see God's mercy and justice perfectly on display. His mercy says, anyone who will come to me, I will accept, despite your flaws, despite your rebellion. All you have to do is trust and repent of your sin, and I will accept you. That's what the cross says. His justice says, if you don't, you will get my wrath. You will get your just deserves for your rebellion. And so we all have a choice to make. That's the truth that Jesus is revealing, that God is just and merciful at the same time. And now that Christ has come, there's no excuses for any of it. 
We've all seen who Jesus is, and we now must make the choice. Am I going to follow him, yield to him, say he's my master? Or am I going to reject him and follow my own way? That's the truth that Jesus reveals. And if we see this and we follow Jesus and we understand what the resurrection is in the coming days, we look forward to Easter, we can see that the resurrection and its conquering of death in the life of Christ being raised from the ground, it can actually change the way that we're living now. We're living now in light of this life eternal that Christ has given us. One poet said it this way, this poet named Julia Esquivel, she said it this way. She says, I now, in light of the resurrection, I now live each day to kill death. I die each day to beget life. And in this dying unto death, I die a thousand times and am reborn another thousand times through love. Speaking of the love of God, she's blown away. Another theologian puts it this way. He says, the Easter faith recognizes that the raising of a crucified Christ from the dead provides the great alternative to this whole world of death. This faith sees the raising of Christ as God's protest against death and against all the people who work for death. The city has been surrounded by death. We have been impacted, and I know your family has too. This author says, for Easter, the Easter faith, recognizes God's passion for the life of the person who is threatened by death and with death. And here's what faith does, the theologian writes. And faith participates in this process of love by getting up out of the apathy of misery and out of the cynicism of prosperity and fighting against death's accomplices here and now in this life. That's what the resurrection does for us. That's part of the truth that Christ is revealing that because he has conquered death, you can now live tomorrow differently. You can have hope. You can go out into the world to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your classmates. Say, look, I've got a hope that you might not know. That hope is in the person of Jesus who has conquered death, and you can be assured that he will have ultimate victory, and you can have the joy of knowing him. So as we look back over the trial, that's what I want you to know this week. Know that Christ can supervise your surprises, whatever comes up. He can rule over them and supervise them. He can run your rebellion, and he can triumph in your darkest night through truth. Now, we're going to have a Lord's Supper here after I pray. And that's a great time to reflect on these glories of Christ that we see in this text. Reflect on what's coming up this week and how you will need Jesus Reflect on the challenges of being a Christian, how Christ would not have you cower away of testifying for him this week, taking a stand for him, walking in the Spirit this week. As you take the bread and the wine, think about the death of Jesus and how he has washed away all of your sin. After I pray, if you're a believer, I'm just going to ask you, whenever you're ready, to come to the front to one of the tables or we have one in the back where you can take the cup and the bread and just take it back to your seat. If you're a visitor with us and you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to take the table. If you're not a follower of Christ, we just ask that you watch us. It's a family meal. We just want you to learn from what we're doing. But after I pray, please join us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. And I ask that we are able to live each day, to kill death, to fight our sin, to live as if we will live forever. 
draw our focuses away from the material things of this world and into your glory as displayed through Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. God, give us hope as we go forward. Let us not blink and miss the resurrections and the glory of it. Instead, let us have much hope now as we move forward this week in the ruling governance of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.